There's going to be a little review here, and I will tell all of you, this is not going to be so much a teaching session as the other eight or the seven of the eight are. Uh, this is going to be a little on the sermonic side, and I'm going to review some things that I've already said just for the sake of bringing us all up to speed. I'm titling this as a message, By the Grace of God, They Made It. <laughs> I think that's a proper title, and I hope you will see that as we move through here. And uh, you maybe have gotten one of these workbooks, and if you haven't, uh, you might raise your hand. We have a few extra copies around here. And I'm not going to be in the seventh session today in this hour. I'll do the seventh and eighth sessions in the two o'clock hour today. And part of, the latter part at least, of chapter six in that workbook will be a part of what I'm going to say here to you. There's a trail from that church which Jesus Christ personally established in his lifetime on this planet. He did it in Jerusalem, Israel, and that trail reaches from that church to today. There are churches just like the one that he established there in existence today, and I will tell you this trail is a continuous line of churches for almost 20 centuries. 22,000 years there have been churches like that in spite of a whole lot of efforts, lots of major efforts, organized efforts by strong powers to do away with it. I'll tell you that the story of the survival of New Testament churches, New Testament Christianity, is one of the great survival stories of all of time. It's right up there with the survival of the Jews, who a lot of people have tried to eradicate and have failed. But this survival of the Lord's church is a great, great historical story. And it is verifiable. It's not just some smoke that some guy like me want to blow. You can look, you can do some research, and there's plenty of evidence of who we are, where we've been all through these years. I will tell you that from any reasonable point of view, we shouldn't be here. I mean, any way you look at it, any way you cut it, um, existing churches should have perished. You would have thought they couldn't endure the persecution and the efforts to eradicate them that they have. But I'm happy to say they did live, they did endure, and we're still here. So there's a historical unbroken line which has survived against overwhelming odds, as I use as a subtitle in this little book that I've written on this subject. Jesus said it would happen. Just one verse in this message. Now I may quote several more, but our main verse is, he, is uh, Matthew 16 and verse 18. Jesus himself, now you got to know when you listen to Jesus doing the talking that here's the head of the bunch. I mean, nobody's got a power. Nobody knows more than he knows. He's the one who's born, who, who's, who's been from everlasting. He's the one who knows what's coming. He's the one who has the power to control. Jesus made this prediction. It's a prophecy. It's a promise. Upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not fail against it. I want to talk about that for just a moment so you understand that when Jesus is talking to the apostle Peter and said, upon this rock, I will build my church, he's not saying, Peter, you're going to be the rock, and I'm going to build the church on you, and you're going to be the first pope, you're going to be the head of the churches down through the years, your successors are. No, no, he's not saying that at all. I was explaining to Brother uh, Briannus just before the service about this very thing, there's a place that I love to visit when we go to Israel. It's called Caesarea Philippi. It's up in the north. It's next to the Lebanese border. And at the very foot of Mount Hermon, which is snow-capped 9,200-foot mountain, uh, and it's snow-capped most all the year, and the water, the snow up there, comes down through the mountain and into the aquifers down there and comes out at a place called the Banias Spring. It's a big cave-like thing in the side of this mountain, and the waters come gushing out of there. It's the start of the Jordan River, which runs down through Israel, between Jordan and Israel, and ends at the Dead Sea. And out of this spring is coming this water. And when you're looking at the spring over here, it's got the mountain over there. Of course, the main part of the mountain's kind of in front of you. The river's right here. And there's this cliff face. I mean, it's a big cliff face, about three, 400 feet and it's wide across three or four hundred feet. It's just this massive piece of bedrock just standing there looking you in the eye. But if you look under your feet, you'll be standing on little gravels, sherds. I mean, you can see they're reddish like the mountain over here, but they're just pebbles that are breakaway pieces, and it lines the ground under you. And Jesus Christ took his apostles to that location 
Peter being in the group, and he said to them as they get to this spot called Caesarea Philippi, who do the people say I am? Well, some of the people think your Isaiah has come back or you're some other prophet has risen. Who do you say I am? That's a good question for you. Who do you think Jesus is? Peter said, thou art the Christ, son of the living God. Flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, Peter. You're right, buddy. I am the Christ. I'm the God of heaven who came down here to live among humans and take their sin to the tree and pay it with my own blood. I am the Christ. And then he looked down at his feet, Jesus. And looking at Peter, he said, you're Peter. He used a, a Greek word, P-E-T-R-O-S, Petros. It's the, little, it's the word for little stones. It's the word for the gravel. Look at that. It's all under your feet. Peter, you're just a little stone. You're a stone, but you're just a little stone. But upon this rock, Jesus said, he changed Greek words. He said, upon this Petra, not Petros, but Petra, that's a bedrock. That's like what you're looking at right in front of you, Peter. I'm not building my church on you, but upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Amen. I'm happy to tell you the church of Jesus Christ, using an abstract sense, talking of wherever there's a church, it's one of Jesus' churches, it's a true church. Where there is a church of Jesus Christ, it's built on Jesus. Amen. He's the foundation. No wonder the Apostle Paul said later, other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus the Lord. I'm glad that this church is not built upon Peter or a part of that Petrine tradition, as it's called. I'm glad this church is established on Jesus Christ. He's the foundation, and he's the head of this church. And he's the head and the foundation of every true church and has been all through since the first church in Jerusalem, Israel. Amen. I want to tell you what Jesus and his apostles taught. Yeah. It unmistakably earmarked them. He didn't leave any doubt about what he was doing. Jesus himself established a church. He called out some, some men, and he sent forth 12 of those men. That's where he really started the ball rolling, right there. It was in his lifetime, not at Pentecost later, but he started this church. He sent those guys out. And he gave them power to do a certain amount of things, but as he sent those guys out, he was teaching them all along the trail. So we have his teachings. You say, where can I find the teachings of Jesus Christ? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Amen. There they were, three or more years with him, hearing what he said, seeing what he did, understanding what he meant. He was explaining things to them. You ought to read the 17th chapter of the book of John and some of those places where he's just talking about it, talking about it over and again. And then you can, if you need some further illustrations and light on the subject, Keep reading, and you'll read the history book, Acts, and then you get into some letters that this apostle Paul wrote to some churches like Corinth and Ephesus and Colossae and Thessalonica and a lot of other places. And what is he doing? He's explaining what he means. He's explaining who Jesus was. He's explaining what Jesus' doctrine is. He said, this is the doctrine that's right. This is the Testament, New Testament church doctrine right here. We don't have to wonder about what New Testament churches believe. It's right there in the Bible. Yes. You say, well, what does that mean? It's a standard of practice. It's called a canon in some language. A canon being not a gun, but a canon being a standard of truth by which others can see and measure themselves. What is the standard? What is the canon? What is the rule of Christianity? It's the Bible. And particularly for churches, it's the New Testament of the Bible. This is where we have what they were, what they believed, what they explained, and so on. What they taught and practiced is the standard. It's the ruler. It's the measuring device of any legitimate church. And it is that which will separate legitimate churches from illegitimate churches. You say, that's pretty straight, Brother Hudson. Yeah, it's pretty straight, Brother Hudson, but yet there are legitimate, illegitimate churches. I would venture so far as to say today 
that most groups that call themselves a Christian church in one form or format or another is illegitimate. They have no real connection to Jesus Christ and the church that in Jerusalem, Israel, that he personally established. And they do not embrace the same doctrinal positions at all that that church embraced. Let me tell you that the name doesn't make you a church. You can put church over a building and over a people meeting in that building, and that doesn't make them such. You can put the name Rose over a skunk, and it doesn't make the skunk a rose, or vice versa. I'm just telling you that it's not in what you say altogether that matters, and we'll see that as we move forward here. But I will tell you that it's what you stand for. It's where you stand. It's your doctrine that determines whether you really belong to the Lord and are legitimate or illegitimate. It's never how big a church is. Because a church is big doesn't make it right. It's never how much money they have. It's never the music program. That's just a part of it, but it doesn't make or break the church. A church is not determined because of how many people it has. It's not determined by its location, and it's not determined by its name. A church is measured by the canon. It's measured by the teachings of Jesus Christ, and they are not in doubt. They are clearly set forth in the Bible. And what I'm about to do is tell you what some of those teachings are. I'm not going to stand here and tell you that in this little session, I can tell you all of the teachings of the New Testament. I spent my life, and it's a pretty long life now, reading this book and the New Testament, and not just reading through it time and time and time again to, to almost 40 times. But I tell you, I've spent hours of my life pouring through it in research books, in Greek and Hebrew dictionaries, looking at words, getting the etymology, getting the path, all of the things that are, that are needed to be. And I'll tell you, I feel like I'm just beginning. After all this time, I'm still learning. I'm still amazed when I study in the Word of God to see new things that I haven't seen. Yes, I will have to tell you that a long time ago, I came to grips with what are the core or the fundamental positions of the Bible and particularly of New Testament Christianity. I wanted to know what did they believe. I wanted to know am I one of them or am I not? Just because I'm in a church... If I don't believe what they believed, I'm not one of them. And I tell you, it was my heart to be one of them. I wanted to be like those people in the church in Jerusalem, Israel, and in the baby church in Antioch, Syria, and in those other churches like in Corinth and other places that sprung up out of the ministry of this central church, the babies and the grandbabies. I said, I want to know that I'm one of the great, great, great grandbabies of this church and that I haven't departed from what they believed. I'm still standing where they are. Because Jesus said, upon this rock I'll build my church, and it will not prevail. The gates of hell will not prevail. It'll keep standing, and it'll be here when I get back. Unto him be glory in the church throughout all ages. Not just start and stop and start and stop, but throughout all ages, world without end. I saw that in the Bible, and I believe that, and I said, there's surely got to be some proof of that. And so it drove me and drove me, goadsing me, to go and see first what they believed, and then to see if there have been people believing that the whole trip. And I've already affirmed that there have been. So let's just take this little look for a little while at these key positions. Not all, but the key positions. The church that Jesus established was clearly his church. Yes, he personally founded his church. He had a group. He set some in the church, first apostles. That's in... 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 11, I think, and, and about verse 28 along in there. He put those guys, he called them forth and sent them out. They were the first members. And whenever one of them, who was a traitor, which is kind of a not even believer, tells you that people can get in a church and be comedians, you know, they're not really believers. They just got in and said they were. That's what Judas' carrot was. He was a member of that group, those 12 that went out there. But you know his story. He was a betrayer. He was never one of them in the first place. In the reality, he was just a comedian hiding among them. But he betrayed Christ, went out and hanged himself in the Cadron Valley, in the Hymn of Valley, which joins the Cadron right over here. 
He went out there and he hanged himself. And so what about the others? There are 120 of them that got together in an upper room in Jerusalem, Israel. After the resurrection of Christ, he's proven who he was and he's gone out of their sight. And they're wondering, what are we going to do? There aren't 12 apostles anymore, just 11 apostles. Now, what are we going to do about those? And those guys numbered from the baptism of John and said, we got to have one that can trace he's a believer because John's was a believer's baptism. He said, you got to repent. You got to know the Christ in order for me to baptize you. It was believer's baptism. And so they were looking for somebody to replace and become that replacement apostle. And they numbered from the baptism of John. Acts chapter one will tell you that story. And they chose this one to replace him. And it was a congregational government that they were doing. I mean, it wasn't just some hierarchy that said, we're going to do it and we're going to replace. No, they didn't get a bishop to do it. They, they all agreed on this is the one. And they had a stamp of God's approval on them. And that church was already in operation. And on that day, that second chapter of Acts day called the day of Pentecost, when they were in that upper room and they were doing what the church is supposed to do, carrying on the business of God, the Shekinah glory of God appeared in a, like a flaming fire of tongues of fire, just like it had when God approved the tabernacle in Moses' day and when he approved the temple in Solomon's day. It said, this is the place where I meet with my people. No longer in a tabernacle, no longer in a temple, but I don't meet just in a building. I meet with my people because the people are the church and I'm putting my stamp of divine approval on the church. Listen, it's the Lord's church. He made that real clear. He didn't leave any doubt about it on the day of Pentecost, but he didn't start it there. He just said, this is the right people. It's already in existence. Jesus is already established. Now he's just saying, yep, it's the right one. Jesus, our people have believed through the centuries that Jesus Christ personally founded his church. That's a core position. He didn't start with Martin Luther. He didn't start with John Knox in Scotland. He didn't chart start with Alexander Campbell somewhere in the United States. It started in Jerusalem, Israel, and Jesus Christ established it, and he's guaranteed it since. Jesus Christ, our people have believed and do believe, and I believe Jesus Christ is God with us. When the angel of God appeared to Joseph, told him about why Mary is pregnant without intercourse, he said, you're going to name him Emmanuel. That means God with us. This is not an ordinary child here. This is the God man. This hypostatic union has occurred. The Holy Spirit has impregnated her and she's going to have a baby. And he's not your baby, Joseph. He's God with us. I believe that folks. I'd die for that cause. I think I would give my life for that cause today. I'm not here because I believe in some man who started this church. I believe that some man is the one who keeps us going. I'm not here to worship some person except Jesus Christ who was God with us. He is Trinity. He's God. And he's the head of the church. God forbid that we ever get so high and lofty that we don't respect our pastor and deacons, those permanent officers in the church and the others who are elders and do the work of God in the Lord's church. But keep in mind, brothers and sisters, but Jesus Christ is our head, not Brother Darren. Not some old member who gives lots of money. Not somebody who's loud mouthed and can buck down and bash down everybody around. Jesus is the head of his church. You look down through the centuries and he's always been regarded by our kind of people as he's the head. Not the guy in Rome, not somebody else out there, but Jesus Christ. Jesus also, his church has two permanent officers. I just mentioned, these are core beliefs. Two permanent officers. Those permanent officers are pastors and deacons. They're talked about, qualifications, and the job requirements, they're all talked about in places like 1 Timothy chapter 3 and some other places in the Bible. They're here. We don't decide whether we're going to have a pastor or not. God put the pastor in the church. We just decide on which one it's going to be. God allows us to decide on who's going to follow the one who dies or who resigns. But God put these officers because God knows what the church needs. I've told lots of people through the years, God didn't set up Sunday so he could mess up our weekends. He knows we need church. Do you suppose God needs to go to church? 
God wasn't going to church a long time before there was a church. It took a long time before the uh, 32 or 30 AD came along and when the church Jesus established was going on 28, 29, 30. Like in there, I'm telling you, God doesn't need church, but he knows you need church. He knows what you need in the church. And you need a pastor who will preach the word, who will be instant in season and out of season and and, uh, provoke and rebuke with all long suffering. The church needs a leader. It needs a pastor who's just an ordinary man who has to go to the Lord himself, just like every other body, in confession of his sins. First John 1 and 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just for you. The pastor has to do that, but the pastor also is the feeder of the flock. And the deacons work together with him and help. They're not to run the church, be the bosses of the church. They're the officers that God put in there. God forbid that you ever call common what God is not calling common, what God has cleansed. Peter learned that lesson. There's another doctrine that I must mention that marks us. I mean, down through the centuries, you look back, here we are, in first century, second, third, and fourth, fifth, all along, just like I was talking here earlier today. The government of Jesus' church is congregational. I mentioned that in Acts chapter 1. Right off the rattle out of the first rattle out of the box. I mean, here they are. Jesus now ascended saying, I'll come again. The angels tell him, you saw him go away, so you shall see him come again. And now they say, we got to occupy till he comes. And what does that mean? We're a church. We've been given the great commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things, keeping them, get them to growth. How are we going to do that? Boy, we're now together. Can you imagine the first meeting of the first church in Jerusalem, Israel, after the Lord's already, man, it was quite a meeting. And they're thinking it through and realizing this is not a decision for Peter and John and Matthew and James. There's some leadership, some direction, but the whole church makes the move. I have some problems with elder-run churches where they run everything and the people don't have much of a voice. I have to tell you that God's church has been, and through the centuries bears out, they're congregational. Yes, there are leaders and they're step up and lead, but they are congregational. Everybody has a voice. It's not just some priesthood up here. I'm Episcopate, know it all. Also, all churches are to be autonomous and self-governing. No church of Jesus Christ has the liberty or the right to surrender its autonomy to a second church or to a group of churches, some convention or board that's going to tell us what to do. Yes, we join together. We're not to be isolationists by any standard, but I will tell you the final say stands in the church and we're not to be bound down in ecclesiastical hierarchies or in any other way because every church is to be autonomous and self-government. The big church can't tell the little church what to do and impose its ideas that started and it grew and it's been done through the centuries, but not by legitimate Bible churches. It's been done by those churches that departed from what Jesus Christ taught because Jesus Christ and those apostles made it real clear that each church is to be autonomous and each church is to be separate and independent of the state. Americans are one of the most ignorant people I've ever heard of in my whole life and read about history. We hardly know how to get out of bed more than sometimes, yet we think we know more than the rest of the world, more than our mom and dad, more than the founders of this nation. Brother and sister, I have to tell you, it is a rare and wonderful privilege to be not in a church state and having the state tell you what to do and run your life and tell you you got to go to church and you got to be penalized if you don't and pay a fine and throw you in jail if you don't preach the state line of things. Freedom. I'm talking about real freedom right here. Every church of Jesus Christ is to be separate from the state. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar, but unto God the things that are God's. Yes, we have an influence and we ought to have an influence on the government of our county and our, our state and our national system. But we are independent people and thank God that still prevails in the United States of America. But I fear that science is getting pretty close to becoming the state church. And this idea of political correctness. If you don't line up and support what everybody else believes and say it's okay, and you say anything against it, we're going to take away your home maybe. We're going to punish you. We'll put you in jail. No I see it going. We're going in that direction. 
It's a sad day to me to see that what Jesus established in the first church has been taken so for granted. We have no concept, especially of Americans who are affluent and free, that we don't appreciate the privilege it is to be affluent and free. If you don't appreciate what it's like to be affluent and free, go spend a few years in Kosovo or go into, into Russia or into South Korea or North Korea or some places around this world where they don't know about freedom. Go talk to my barber. She's a refugee here from Vietnam. She was a teenage girl. She got to feel what it's like to get permission from the government to even have your kids come over and eat a lunch in your home. You can't do that in these states. And freedom of assembly is not in our Bill of Rights by accident. People who didn't have freedom to get together in assembly because the government afraid you're going to plot on us and they fought for us to have freedom and they were standing on a biblical principle that is common to the church in Jerusalem, Israel and true churches have stood for this through the years. I want to also mention that Jesus' churches are to assemble on the Lord's day, which is Sunday. You know, he was, Jesus was found to be risen on the first day of the week and they came there thinking to find him in that tomb. <laughs> he found it rolled, stone rolled back and Mary went in and Peter went in and these people went in there and saw that the tomb was empty and they were flabbergasted what's happened. They realized pretty quick that Jesus is not here, but he is risen. That's what the angels told them right off. He's risen from the dead. Hallelujah for that. Miracle of miracles. He could raise others. He could steal the, dead, the, the sea of Galilee. He could raise a man's arm. He could do all kinds of wonderful, godly things. But can he save himself? Mister, you're on the cross. You saved others. Let's see who you really are. Let's see if you can save yourself. And three days later, it was obvious that he saved himself. He rose from the dead. And that's the hallmark of us as Christians. It gives us a hope. I'm not here today to serve a dead Savior. Somebody died some years ago and his ashes or dust is in some tomb somewhere. I'm here to serve a risen Savior who rose on the first day of the week. And every time you go to church on the first day of the week, you're voting with your action. It's a pantomime action saying, my God lives. He's risen from the dead. I'm glad to go to church on Sunday. I don't feel like I have to be here. I'm not here because I'm going to get fined if I don't come. I'm here by choice because I serve a Savior who's alive. And on the second Sunday, the very next one after his resurrection, Thomas and some of those other guys were sitting around, and they had seen him. Some of the others has, but Thomas has. And Thomas said, I don't believe you guys. I don't believe he's alive. I won't believe it until I see him. I put my hand where he is, and I know it's him. And Jesus appeared in their midst. And he said, Thomas, of all ones, he'd single. Thomas, touch me. Here's where the scar is. Look for yourself. Here's my hand. God, you're my Savior. You're our life. And they did it on Sunday. I'm in good company by being in this house on the Lord today. And it's going to take something pretty dramatic and has for the 82 years of my life to keep me out of the house of God. Because I know my fathers and my forefathers, all the way back to that first church in Jerusalem, Israel, they went to worship the living Savior on the Lord's Day, which is the first day of the week. I have to hurry and tell you that salvation, according to our creed and what Jesus taught, salvation is exclusively, exclusively by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who died, was buried, and raised for us. I know what the world thinks about this. I've read some articles about what people who have other ideas say. You're too dogmatic. You're exclusivistic. We're not going to talk. You've got to be tolerant. You've got to be open to all concepts. You can't say you've got the only one. That's what the Romans, the pagan Romans said to those early Christians. You can worship this Jesus all you want to. Do what you want. Go to his house. Do whatever you want to do. But you've got to admit that the Caesar is also a god. You've got to admit that the Roman gods that we stole from the 
from the Greeks, their gods, our pantheon of gods, Zeus and Athena and all those, you know, you got to admit that. And you also have to acknowledge the mystery gods. I mean, the people we conquered in Egypt had gods. And the people we conquered in Mesopotamia, they had gods. And the people we conquered in England, they had gods. You can worship your God, but just don't say there's a, right, a wrong. Don't say you got the only way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except by me. I believe that. I'm not here to damn other people. I'm just here to try to help other people come to the real source of eternal life. That's a principle. It's a stand. Salvation. By grace, through faith, exclusively through Jesus Christ who died, was buried, and raised again. And brothers and sisters, if I die at the burning at the stake or brought in a jail somewhere, and I think some of us may if the Lord doesn't come back pretty soon, it won't be because I like the music at my church. It won't be because we had a great congregation in a location. It won't be because I had some friends who went to church there. If I'm going to give my life, it's going to be because I believe that salvation is in Jesus and him alone. That's worth dying for, you know. There are some other doctrines, and I can't, as I said, cover them all, but I have to cover this one because it's so important. Only saved people are to be baptized. Only people who've embraced the doctrinal position of salvation by grace through faith are eligible to be baptized. And no position that I know that has been held by our kind of people through all these centuries has been contested, and more people died for it than any other than this particular position. Because pretty soon the drifting group that went away and became the big thing called the Catholic Church, they decided that salvation's not by believing in Jesus Christ. They decided salvation is in the church. And you have to be baptized to be in the church. And you need to be baptized to be in the church. And therefore, if you're a baby, we don't know if you're an elect baby or a non-elect baby. So we're going to baptize all the babies so they can be in the church and make it. The church don't get you to heaven. Jesus Christ is our hope. And you cannot be a legitimate candidate for baptism until you embrace the fact that Christ died for our sins, was buried and raised, and he's your Savior. I'll tell you what some of our enemies did. They started killing people like us because they did not accept the idea that salvation is by some other means. And you can be baptized into the church and be okay. I could talk a long time about the priesthood of every believer. That means that every believer has a right to go to God. You don't have to go through the pastor. You don't have to go through a priest. You just go to God because Jesus Christ is our high priest. And Hebrews says, let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who is passing. You say, who do you go to for confessing, Brother Hudson? I go to him every time, every day, several times. I go to Jesus Christ. Praise God for the priesthood of every believer. It simply means that every believer is of equal worth to God. In the economy of God, there are no big eyes and no little U's. We're all just before God, sinners saved by grace. And everybody who stands before God one of these days when he comes back is going to sing the song of the redeemed. For thou hast redeemed us by thy blood out of every kindred and people and nation. Everybody a sinner Everybody's saved, saved by the grace of God. Everybody's standing on even, even, even ground. When you get to heaven, you can't go around and say, how did you get here? And somebody's going to say, well, I was a good old boy. I gave a lot of money. I joined this church. I was baptized here. You're going to hear one message when you stand before the God of heaven. It is, I'm here redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Amen. Just a sinner saved by grace. So therefore, it's been our stance through the years that there is no ecclesiastical hierarchy. We respect the officers of the church, but they have to go to God too. And we stand on equal ground before God. And another great doctrinal truth that I must mention is that the scriptures, and only the scriptures, are inspired of God. Oh, I hope you appreciate that you can hold a Bible in your hand. That has not been the case for a long time in the history of our people. There were efforts, major efforts, to keep the Bible out of the hands of the ordinary people. Wycliffe, one of those Bible translators, one of those early guys that got it over here to us, he, he died for it. He, he was just wanting to get to put the Bible in the English language. 
And there was a long time when the Bible wasn't under a bound canon here. It was separate, separate books. The Old Testament first was separate books, and then the Jews got those all into one. It was the Old Testament. And then there were books along. 27 right books and a bunch of wrong books. This Gospel according to Thomas and a Shepherd of Hermes and a whole bunch of these others out there. They're all going around, and people are wondering which is the right one until finally God made it clear and put 27 of them in here. And he got it right. By the way, God does that sort of thing. You know, he gets things right. Amen. So I'm glad to tell you that I can hold in my hand a full copy of God's revealed word. You say, is this all God knows? No. There's <laughs> not enough paper in the world to hold all God knows. But this is what he wanted us to have. And when I read through this book, I don't read through it thinking, well, I wonder if that's true or not. I read through the book knowing it's all true. I may not understand it all, but this is God's word. I can let lean on it. And I will tell you our position as Baptists have been through the years that the scriptures and only the scriptures, not just good writings of whoever it may be, but these 66 books, they are the right ones. And by the way, another position that grew out of that one is that this book is our final rule of belief and doctrine and practice. We believe what this book teaches. If it's against that, we have to be against that. If it's for that, we have to be. We don't just get among ourselves, well, I don't think they're right. I don't think those believers are right. It's not what you think. It's not what I think. It's not what the Supreme Court says it's right. Here's what's right. Here's where real a source of authority is. And we as real Christians made it our business a long time ago to say, we're going to stand upon the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. It's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. That's a nice little kid song, but that's where we stand. It's the word of God. I have to move before the end of the first century and before any New Testament was completed, this big move away from what I've been talking about here had already gotten underway, even before the Bible was completed. Gnosticism, this idea of we know more than you, uh, came along, and you see it mentioned and referred, there's references to it here, even in our Bible. And I will tell you that this move away from truth gained strength year after year. The movement away gained strength. And in an evil and immoral marriage, and I want you to hear this, an evil and immoral marriage of the Roman Empire, the old Roman Empire, to the church, what they call Christianity, as if there's one big church. In this real terrible evil marriage, the church became wed to the state. And this state church had already drifting before it even got wed, this so-called church, drifting away and deciding that doctrine, truth, is not what the Bible says it is, and that's not orthodox. Real orthodoxy is what the church says the Bible says, and Heretics are people who don't agree with the church, not people who don't agree with the Bible. So that's the same sort of thing as just brewing and growing and growing. And so as that's going on, this grew bigger and stronger. Um, when this move in, in uh, 323 happened, where the state wedding happened with the church, all of a sudden, the power of the government is behind the power of the church. And they decided everybody's going to be like us or we're going to do away with you. We're going to eradicate you. If you're not one of us, we're going to take you out. And they began to get serious about it and to try to do it. This group morphed as it went along and grew up into two groups. It, it became known as the Catholic Church. But there was some division within it. And so you have two sides. You have the eastern side in uh, Constantinople which is now uh, Istanbul, Turkey. And they have a patriarch over there, and they have their way of doing things. But they're Catholics. But over here in Rome, you have this bigger seat, and all this stuff is changing in Europe, and so it's getting stronger, and this guy that's a preacher becomes bigger, and they decide he's the real preacher where all the churches, not church, but churches, uh, church, churches, but church. So, I mean, it just gets bigger. And finally, it prevails, and they have a split, and this is the Eastern Orthodox over here on the eastern end, and this is the Roman, Western Roman Catholic Church. 
And as this thing got to going, I want to tell you, it became one of the wickedest, brutalest people-killing machine that this planet has ever seen in its entire history. What happened in the papacy in the Roman Catholic Church for a thousand years, or 1500 nearly, it makes what Adolf Hitler did in, to the Jews in Germany look real mild. It is like a Sunday picnic. People died. I've mentioned in this, in this little seminar that in a thousand years after the church converted to the Roman you know, state church, they martyred, I mean killed them. They didn't just beat them up. Over 50 million people, mostly of us, because we wouldn't agree that they were right and wouldn't join them. And they came to the position, you're going to either join us or we're going to eradicate you. That's just the stance they took. In fact, the Catholic Church made it her mission to dominate the world and to eradicate all the opposition, all the opposition. And everybody who wouldn't join her, not just those who opposed, but those who would not join her and bow down and do what she said to do. They did three main things. I mentioned it yesterday. Three main things that made it, they facilitated this. One of the popes through a bull, they called it a, a, Episcopal, a, a papal bull. It's just a declaration which carries then the authority of the church because he's the vicar of God, the mouthpiece of God. So what he says is supposed to be of God. He made these three bulls. Number one, he did a bull of excommunication, which means that he established himself and his Roman Catholic Church with the power to damn to hell anybody who didn't embrace Catholicism. If you don't like this, we're not only going to kill your body, we're going to send your spirit to hell. You're gone. That we can do to you. He instituted another bull shortly thereafter, and this bull is called the interdict. And that papal bull simply said, we not only have the power to damn some individual to hell, we have the power to damn a whole nation to hell. Like England, for example, when one of the Henrys decided he didn't like what the Pope was doing, telling him all tight what to do. He's kind of getting internationalism over there and growing up. He let the Pope know it. The Pope issued this edict onto him or this bull saying that uh, your whole nation of England is going to hell. Whole nation. And you have all these feudal lords over there and these guys that have soldiers and you know spears and bows and arrows. They marched down to the king of England and said, you're not going to send all of us to hell. You're going to get along with the Pope. So he had to recant. Say, okay, that's what it takes. I'm going to take my life for this. I'm talking about not only excommunication individuals, but excommuting a whole people like England because somebody doesn't do what you want. He did a third thing that facilitated what I'm about to say. He instituted the ban, B-A-N. That is, he had the power, the church had then the power to exile anybody that they wanted to from Prussia or from Austria to Spain or wherever they wanted to send them. They could, they could run them off. Just get rid of them and take all their property, all their house and everything away from them and run them off. Just get rid of them like that. They began what is called a reign of terror. I have to pause here long enough just to walk through this in a very rapid way. If you have your workbook, you can find these, these in here. Uh, one of the things they did was institute legates. This is going to be in lesson number six. It's over about uh, three quarters of the way, almost through lesson number six in your workbook. So I want to talk about who the legates were. They were Catholic workers or legates. Legates were the brainchild of Gregory Seventh. They were appointed by him and then consequently by following popes after him it stayed a law and they could all do it to carry out his wishes. That's what the legates were for. They were directly answerable to the pope to do what the pope wanted them to do. Legates carried the personal power of the pope and the authority he had. And that authority of the pope which went through the legates overrode any other authority of a sheriff or of a landowner, or of a priest, or anybody else, a bishop, anywhere else. What the Pope said came straight from the Pope, and it was the ruling authority. 
these legates spread out over Europe because by that time the Roman Catholic Church owned about two-thirds of the whole country. So they spread out hunting for what? Heretics. They didn't go out looking for deer and antelope or elk. They went out looking for heretics. Who were heretics? The people the church had said are heretics because they don't take our position on orthodoxy. They believe that salvation is by grace through faith and it didn't come through the church. So they, the Pope says, we'll get rid of you guys. We'll take you out of here. So these legates had free reign wherever they went, whether it was in the king's palaces or in some secular ruler's place. They were almost universally corrupt. The historical records of these legates indicate that the vast majority of them were known among the Catholic peers, the own peers that agreed with them. They were known for what? Their immorality, their drunkenness, and their promiscuity. Overbearing ways. Bullies. They could do it. They had the power of the Pope behind them. Nobody could get a pill above them. They went out to hunt down people who believe the, t- the doctrine I've just espoused to you moments ago. Let me also talk, besides these legates, about the Inquisition. It's in the notes. In 1215, the Roman Catholic Church instituted courts of inquisition and gave them also the power to hunt down and torture heretics. That's people who didn't go along with the Pope and the church, the big church. Simply being a non-Catholic was adequate grounds for the rankest persecution and torture. No crime, just not being a Catholic. That's all it took for you to get in one of these courts. The Inquisitors set up business in monasteries. It was Catholic places, these monasteries, which became both the court and the prison where the crimes against humanity were carried out. No witness might refuse to testify under pain of also being a heretic. You're brought in to testify for somebody. You can't not testify because if you don't testify, if you have to make it up as you go along accusing somebody, you're going to be the next to be tried as a heretic. Pretty rigged system. Witnesses were tortured in order to get them to say what the inquisitors wanted. Because remember, the inquisitors were Catholics. They were in the party line. And the judges were Catholics. And the prosecutors were Catholics. And the defenders were Catholics. And all everybody was a Catholic. So if you didn't say as a witness, and you had to witness or you'd be a heretic, if you didn't speak up and say what they wanted you to say, they would just torture you until they made you say it. I mean, you'd be so, so desperate you'd say anything. It was in Spain that the Inquisition was the very worst. On May 26, 1232, Inquisitioners were sent to Argonne by uh, Pope Gregory IX. The Spanish Inquisitioners purge against non-Catholic is one of the most gruesome, inhumane, and barbaric campaigns against humanity that ever existed in the planet. In 1234, Gregory the, the uh, 11th, orchestrated a crusade against Bosnia. He laid waste to Bosnia. Now it's not just punishing heretics. He's going into a sort of a land that had been conquered and converted to Catholicism. So here's the, here's the Pope sending a guy over there with a specific purpose. We're going to conquer that land. You say, well, what do you call those guys that did stuff like that? Conquistadors. Let me tell you, when Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492. He went out to conquer people at the Pope's hand. Subdue people. So did Cortez and all these other conquistadors that we sometimes hold in a little high esteem, and I think wrongfully so. They came over to this new world with the idea of conquering the people taking the wealth, especially the gold and the silver and the precious gems they could, conquering them and converting them to Catholicism. And sometimes it was like down in Mexico, you know, at Montezuma's situation down there at Mexico City. Came in, you got to confess to you being a heretic. If you do, we'll kill you. If you don't confess, we'll kill you for not confessing. Not too many options in this picture. Conquistadors went around this world conquering taking people, taking property. They were directly sent by these popes. Torture methods. You say, well, how did they torture people? Look on that page, and you will see just a listing of ripping out nails and teeth, beatings, 
blindings, boilings, bone breaking, branding and burning, castration, choking, cutting, disfigurement, dislocation, drowning, flagation, whipping and beating, flaying, roasting, genital mutilation, limb and finger removal, starvation, tongue removal, disemboweling, compression of the limbs by special instruments or ropes, injection of water and vinegar are all into the body, application of hot patches, just some of the ways. But the real torture tools, there's just a list of them in these notes here. Here's some of the torture tools that they used, like the boot or the Spanish boot it's sometimes called. These were high boots. They were made out of spongy leather and they were placed on a victim's feet. And then a quantity of boiling water was poured on the boots, which penetrated the leather and ate away the flesh and often dissolved the flesh and the bones inside the boot. This is kind of torture. I'm not talking about little kid stuff. Where are you? Is your sissy? I'll hit you if you don't do it. No, they're talking real awful. One of the other issues was the branding irons. These were used for like cattle, just brand people, you know, if they didn't do it. The collar, eleven heavy 11-pound spiked metal collar used for fitting around the neck of the victim, and it usually resulted in inf- infections and a slow, grueling death with the neck all bent up like this when it had that thing on it, the collar. Ducking stools. These were stools bent on in the end of a pole where somebody back here could, uh, kind of like a seesaw, pull the person up and put a person down. They'd put a person in the stool, bind them in the stool where they couldn't get out, and they'd build a fire under there, and they'd put a person in the fire, pull them back up. You say, why don't they just put them in the fire and let them burn up? They wanted them to suffer a while. They wanted to make sure they felt the flames and felt the agony of it. There, were the foot, there was the foot press used for crushing feet, the heretic's fork, which has a, a length of metal with two opposing bipronged forks uh, as well as an attached strap. One end was pushed under the chin, another end under the sternum, and the strap across the ho- uh, device under the neck, and the, it effectively mobile, immobilized people. Uh, and it, it just became a point of grief and suffering and great agony and great pain. You can just imagine that. And then the maiden, an iron cabinet with a hinge front. Sometimes people, these who were deemed not obeying the rules of the Catholic Church, not joining up and supporting like our forefathers that I've talked about. These people were, they were put in there and roasted. They just roasted them alive. Just burned them up. The pillory. Kind of scaffold in public with a wheel. The victim was attached to the wheel and then it just turned and turned and exposed to the crowd and usually there was other tortures in, in it. The brink it's also called the, the, the uh, gossip's bridle. It's another way of just torturing people in the mouth. Stocks. Victims put in stocks. That came to America. There were a lot of stocks. People put in stocks even over here. The thumb screw was a particular device for coming down on the thumb until it got so painful that people just yelled and screamed. And then the wheel was a device to stretch and break and rip apart the victims. The victims. But burning at the stake, along with the rack, rack were the two biggies. And I don't want to spend too much time right here, but I just want to tell you, this burning at the stake thing is one of the most macabre, evil imaginations I've ever heard of. And it was the, it became the chief means of executing heretics. These Bible-lying Christians who believe salvation by grace through faith, who didn't believe the Pope was the head of the church, but believed Christ was. Who didn't believe the church is built on Peter, but is built on Jesus Christ. They would take people, these type people mainly, these legates would ferret them out and bring them in, you know. Okay, we're going to deal with them here. So they would put a post in the ground, like a tree, you know. They would get a person and tie the hands and the feet behind there, and we couldn't get away. And build a fire around it and set it on fire. And fortunately, as the flames began to flow and come up, those people would asphyxiate the people. The gas would just kill them and put them out of their misery. But these persecutors devised better ways of doing it. So they would build the fire back. Well, the smoke didn't get them. 
and they would take bundles of stems and light them. They're called faggots. And stick them up to their feet and pull them away. Stick them up to their hands and just torture them until they eventually died. Sometimes the families would be allowed to bring in wood and put on there so they could burn their mother. They gloried in that. Hundreds of thousands of people, our forefathers, were burned at the stake for our freedoms. So you could be here today, a symbol like you're a symbol here today. They also had a thing called the rack. There's a picture of it it's on the screen. You put a person on this rack and had these pulleys and ropes and tie him there or her up here, the legs, turn the crank, turn the crank. He could hear the bones pop, the knuckles bursting, people screaming in agony. And one of the main tricks was they put them on the rack to get the truth out of them. And they made families come and stand and watch mother and daddy or somebody else in their life die. Or we'll put you on the rack. So they would pull people apart. Sometimes the legs and the arms just break off, just pull them off. Poor people dying. So they didn't die because they didn't believe something. They went through that kind of stuff because they had some convictions. They didn't believe we ought to go to church so we could have a good concert and lots of music that we like. They went there to learn the doctrine of Jesus Christ. We hardly hear doctrine. The emphasis is not on it. You keep the preaching to 15 minutes and let the singing be 30. We somehow got things screwed up. We don't know our own heritage and what it costs for us to be here today. Brothers and sisters, I tell you, I look at the picture of what Jesus taught and what the apostles taught in that church in Jerusalem, those baby churches. I look here, and we're like that. And I look through these years, and I see the Eastern group, those Serbians and Bogomils that started uh, through the Paulicians, and they were called Cathari, and they were called Anabaptists because of their practice of baptizing unbelievers. They didn't... If somebody split, it wasn't they split from the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church split from the doctrine. That's the way it really happened. I look at the middle section of Europe. I look at that center part where these Italians were being persecuted and where they had to run and flee for their lives to the Cotian Alps in southern France and northern Italy. And they hid in caves and dens. And many of them were just burned to death caught up with by these legates and oh it's terrible and I see but I see our people they're still there I look over to the west side all the way to Wells and I see the Welch Baptist Church from Poots and Claudia who were in Paul's they were his, his guards when he was in that praetorian uh, guards when he was in the cell in Rome and he's preaching to them they got saved and they took the gospel back to Wells and I see them standing firm and I look down through the years and I see from over here to over here an unbroken line of people who paid the ultimate price for me to be free today. I have to tell you, friends, I'm not ashamed to be a Baptist. I have no reason to want to not identify with my people who stood up and made me who I am and brought me. They got the message across to the next generation. And under all kinds of impossible odds, they got to the third and the 20th generation. And sometimes, somehow, in a little town in East Texas called Lufkin, eight miles out in the country, in a little country church called Fairview Baptist Church, I heard an old preacher who'd never been to seminary tell the gospel of Jesus Christ. It reached me, and I trusted Christ. And I thank God for the heritage that helped me to come to understand that you have to go, you can only go to heaven by Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. I believe that. I'm one of them. I have to tell you I'm one of them. And I hope I'm never ashamed to be who I am. I'm proud. I'm not proud in the sense that I glory in it, and I'm telling everybody, I'm looking down there, I thank God where the gospel is preached. But I'm glad, I'm humbly grateful for my heritage and that I'm a Christian and I'm a Baptist Christian. I still believe what Jesus taught. I'm going to ask you to stand. Father, I'm going to pray here. And our pastor's going to take charge of this invitation. There are people in this room who need to get saved. They ought to do it today. The gospel is still with us.
Some people saw to it. Pray, they gave themselves so that we could hear this wonderful story that we preach with freedom of assembly and freedom of, of expression today and speech in this church. God, help me to never minimize the blessings that have been passed down to me. I mean, not to take for granted my parents, my grandparents, not just my mortal ones in a human way, but my spiritual ones who got this wonderful message down here. Lord, help me to identify and be more like Christ. And maybe and this church be more like the first church that he ever established. God, if there are people who need to be a part here, who need to join this church, they can. Some may need to be baptized to be here. We just have to look at that. But Lord, it's time. It's time. We're in the last days. It's time for people to get involved with you. Know who they are. Know what they need to stand for. And help us not to be ashamed to stand up for what's right. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.